Bullshit. Pretend for a moment we've entered a parallel universe, free of bullshit and full of bold solutions. That's what the No BS Marketing Show is all about. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich. Our guest today is Ken Stout, CEO at Growth Fountain, an SEC-registered funding portal where individuals can come together to support entrepreneurs and small businesses across America. And you know this show talks a lot about entrepreneurship, leadership, and communication, so Ken is going to be a fantastic guest. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's great to, uh, great to be you. Ken, I definitely want to learn more about Growth Fountain, but first, let's start by having you walk us through your educational background and your career journey, and uh, our listeners are going to immediately think you're another ringer because you're from Pittsburgh, but we didn't realize that when we first met, so everyone will think you're a ringer because it's a Pittsburgh-based show, but walk us through your educational background, your career journey, and how much you love the Steelers. Oh, well, it's certainly, you know, when I introduce myself to people, in New York, and they ask, you know, where I'm from, and I say, well, I'm from the city of champions, of course. And uh, <laughs> nobody s- tends to disagree with that. So we've got, uh, we, th- we certainly have a good dynasty um, from a sports perspective. Now, my background, you know, I grew up in the South Hills. I'm from Mount Lebanon, and I went to college at a small liberal arts school in South Central Pennsylvania called Dickinson College. And at Dickinson, I majored in economics and I knew I just always wanted to go to Wall Street. And I didn't really understand, maybe from a young age, exactly what Wall Street was and how sort of the assistance of, of capital formation for businesses worked um, and really what that machine did. But I knew that it was exciting and I knew that that's what I wanted to be a part of. And so right after graduation, I joined a startup hedge fund um, in New York called AM Investment Partners. And I, you know, obviously I knew nothing right out of college. And, you know, as I progressed down that career path, um, uh, you know, some of the challenges that you have when you're an early employee in a, in a business that typically requires a certain skill set is you don't get the love and attention that you need to fully develop. And so I, I quickly realized that I needed to really educate myself and took on, um, you know, I, be, you know I, I, I took the CFA exams and became a chartered financial analyst and then knew I, um, you know, I should go to business school. So I went to Columbia Business School, really developed a very um, good education in and around um, analyzing what makes a good business and how to make you know, how to make investments in good businesses. From there, I went to a, um, a pretty uh, large hedge fund um, called Schultz Asset Management in New York, and they ran distressed, event-driven, and special situation strategies. We ran about $800 million, and I, I did very well. I just took to it. I liked it and became the senior most investment professional um, within a year and a half. And of course, in a year and a half, the financial crisis hit. <laughs> and, and, you know, this was now, um, to, you know, late 2008, early 2009. And Schultz just, you know, sort of suffered the same plight as all other financial institutions. Um, you know, of course, the performance struggled, but all investors needed cash. So they withdrew everywhere they could. And Schultz was not immune to that. 
And um, I found myself um, in April of 2009 joining the ranks of the unemployed and, um, you know, sort of perceiving that this was the investment opportunity of a lifetime, but you couldn't get a job anywhere. And so um, luckily I was incredibly ignorant and naive and had no idea how difficult it would be to start a hedge fund of my own but figured that that's what I had to do because this was an investment opportunity of a lifetime. I couldn't find a job somewhere else. And so I co-founded a firm called Tiburon Capital Management. And it was based in New York. And we were going to run a venture of in distress and special situation strategies. And, you know, I'll sort of use a Howard Marxism here, uh, who's a very famous investment professional, who says, of all the alternative histories that could have occurred, you know, our path was probably the least likely, but it did lead to some modest success. Uh, we were able to raise um, some money. We raised about $52 million. We outperformed our peers and benchmarks and ended up being acquired by a company um, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, called Gray & Company, and they were a pension endowment advisor. And that happened on August 15th, 2013, and that's the day that I started Growth Fountain. And so Growth Fountain, um, as you mentioned earlier, we're um, an SEC-registered funding portal. And what happened was, um, you know, as I think it was Rahm Emanuel who said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And, you know, if there's one good thing that came out of the great financial crisis of 2008-2009, it's that Congress convened in desperation and said, Lending has seized from banks to the small business community in this country. We need to update these antiquated securities laws and we need to do it now. And, and that dysfunctional administration in Congress, seemingly probably just as dysfunctional as it is today, uh, Congress and, you know, both the House and the Senate were able to rally around this new law that was called the Jobs Act and almost unanimously voted for it. And it was signed into law on April 5th, 2012 by President Obama. Of course, the SEC took four, four and a half years to finalize the rules, and it just went live last year. But it does two things um, that really revolutionize securities law. I mean, it's, just if I take a step back, if you walk down Main Street in any town across America and you look left, you look right, and you see myriad local businesses, it's your favorite restaurant or bar, the accountant or lawyer who's hung his or her shingle. And we just take for granted that these businesses exist. We've never been part of their struggle to raise money. We've never been able to participate in the upside. And that's because when this securities act, you know, the, the SEC was created in the securities act of 1933. Um, you know, it came out of this era in the great depression when, um, you know, snake oil salesmen and, and we're, we're phoning people and selling them false securities, right? So there was all kinds of fraud and um, lack of investor protection. And so the SEC said, enough. You know, if you're going to invest in private companies, you need to be rich. And companies cannot publicly advertise their fundraise because, you know, that, that could lead to a lack of investor protection. So fast forward back to my story here. The Jobs Act does two things. First, it says you no longer need to be rich. Everybody in the world can now invest in America's small businesses and entrepreneurs. 
And second, companies can now publicly advertise their fundraise. And that brings the internet into play. And um, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a little bit of a ramble, but the, no, the story. This is awesome. That, this is awesome stuff. <laughs> There's a story that punctuates this pub, this concept of public advertisement. It doesn't sound like a big deal. But a few years ago, there was a, a small company in upstate New York called Milk Thistle Farm. And they actually provide a lot of the dairy product to a very prestigious New York-based restaurant chain um, called Mama Fuku. And Milk Thistle was at a farmer's market. And, you know, this was about five years ago. And on the side of their little blue tent where they were selling dairy product, they put a, literally a post-it note that said, do you like our you like our milk, you like our products, talk to us, you know, we're looking for investors. That was illegal. And the SEC prosecuted them for it. Wow. And so that, you know, fast forward to today, that's no longer the case. Companies can advertise on the internet. They can get a billboard in Times Square if they want to. And so, um, you know, that, what, what you can now do as a small business or an entrepreneur in America is, if you think about that quintessential local business, your favorite bar, you go into your favorite bar, what you're going to start to see is on the menu and on a poster in that restaurant or bar, like our bar, own the next one. We're raising money on growthound.com. And so, so the ability to turn customers into owners who can go off and become brand ambassadors and evangelists and actually spread the word and help your business grow, that's what we're all about. Man. That is some amazing stuff. What a great story. That's what happens when you're from Pittsburgh, specifically the South Hills. <laughs> Complete bias of me there. So many things to touch on. I want to start with the first one, which shows a, a, a really a self-awareness, which I think I talk a lot on this show about how important self-awareness is. And the second part is how important it is to do something you're passionate about. So you begin right out of college. You just, You knew during college that you wanted to be involved in the financial sector and you knew you had to end up in New York city. So that's the first thing was you had that presence of mind and self-awareness to do that and make that leap. But yet you then found it to be pretty challenging. So let's talk about that first job. I often call it the Oh God moment when you start a particular position. And when does the Oh God moment hit? Like one time it happened to me at 1050 on the first day. And I was like, Oh God, I might have made a mistake. But other times it happens in week two. Sometimes it doesn't have to a month into it. Talk about that first job and when that hits you and being a young person, how you dealt with that emotionally and mentally. Well, I, I think life had been easy for me. Um, school had been easy for me through high school and college and I, I excelled and I just kind of assumed that when I started my first job, it would just continue on that trajectory. And that was not the case. <laughs> so <laughs> when I, when I joined AM investment partners, I didn't know anything and nobody was willing to teach me anything. And, uh, that was very frustrating for me. And so the partners of the hedge fund, they had um, both sort of that the, the head trader had been had run the trading desk at Deutsche Bank, the convertible arbitrage desk at Deutsche Bank. The um, guy who sort of ran the firm, he had run the sales desk at the convertible arbitrage sales desk at Deutsche Bank. They were, you know, 30 wrapped around 30 years old or something. And they had, um, 
you know, been doing very well at Deutsche Bank and they decided it was time to start their own hedge fund and brought me on sort of as an intern initially. And that turned into a, a junior analyst role. But, you know, the, the atmosphere and environment where they came from was that junior people got hazed. And the highest and best value that someone who doesn't know anything is to go get coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I found myself in this environment where I was sort of stuck getting coffee for the desk, um, you know, washing the partner's cars and moving furniture to Long Island and, and doing all these things, which I was totally fine with. Um, but, you know, sort of what I thought the, the fair exchange was for that kind of you know, behavior, the tit for tat was that they would teach me something, you know, that I wouldn't be stuck in that, you know, hole forever where my highest and best use was, um, to, to just, you know, be an errand boy for them. And that's when I realized I wasn't going to get the education there that I needed. And I needed to, you know, do what I could to, um, advance my own education. But you mentioned at the beginning of the call that, uh, that I was, going to have to explain at, at some point where I was the bullshit employee. This is that, this is that place. Right. Where, let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, it's not that I didn't want to be extremely value added. I didn't know how. And that just led to a terribly frustrating experience where it felt like I was spinning my wheels a little bit. And I'm sure um, from their perspective, um, you know, they could sense some of the frustration and wasn't being super value added. And so collectively, you know, after, uh, I was there from essentially from November 2000, um, into, um, I guess maybe 2000, late 2003, 2004. So I was there for two or three years and just sort of together we sat down and decided that perhaps that wasn't the best place for me and that they weren't willing to provide what I needed and I needed to go somewhere else to get that. You begin then to start looking at where else you can go. And, um, you, it sounds like you landed something pretty good that you, it was at Schultz. You said you went to next. Is that the next move? The next move was Columbia business school. Okay. Okay. And that was just a wonderful experience for me. Um, so you actually leave a job, go back to school full time. Yes. And was it an 18 month program, two years, two years, okay. two years. And the summer in between your two years, you're expected to get um, an internship in the career that you'd like to pursue. And of course, when you enter school, um, I didn't, I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm still going to do this wall, you know, wall street's my, my dream. This is what I want to learn. And then when you get there, they throw all these options at you, all these, you know, potential career paths to examine. And these are things that I'd never heard of before. <laughs> you know, I didn't even know what they were. Things like management consulting or all the different career paths that you can have at an investment bank or other types of managerial roles at, at large corporations and leadership programs and things that really, um, I, I sort of derailed me a little bit to really try to examine and learn what all of these things were to make sure that I was making the decision that I, that was right for me. Um, but you know, after a lot of, um, interviews and examination, that kind of thing, I, I knew that, uh, that, that I, the hedge fund path and the wall street path was the right one for me. And, um, you know, took a, a summer internship 
at Cantor Fitzgerald, which was a, which was a great experience, had uh, um, I, I tell this story, but I won't name the professor just because I'm not sure if he'd want it to be named. But my first day of class, and this turned out to be the, my favorite professor I've ever had, and he taught statistics, and he said, you know, I've never failed anyone in my class, not once, not ever. And I've been teaching here for 15 years. And he said, I've had students ponder, what would it take to fail this class? And somebody pondered that if they never showed up for a single class, except the final exam and wrote only three words at the top of the final exam, fuck you professor and handed it in (laughs) that they would fail, but it's never been tried. And so, you know, made, made my way through school. And at the end of business school, um, you know, people that were going for big uh, employers, Wall Street banks or, or big consulting companies, they all received offers very early in their second year. So they sort of knew they had the comfort of a job. And when I graduated at a hedge fund, they don't hire on campus early. You know, they hire when they're ready to hire. And so I made, you know, the bold decision at that time was that I wanted to travel around the world, um, you know, without the, without the, uh, the comfort of knowing that I had a job to come back to. So I took three months and, and did that and then came back and really just sort of the timing worked out well. And I did get that offer from Schultz. Um, and Schultz is really the place where I cut my teeth and really learned how, um, to analyze you know, what makes a good company and, and how, you know, how do you, I always say that in the investment world, it helps to be able to look at an opportunity through the lens of a distressed credit analyst. And because you're always skeptical and you're always looking for how things can go wrong and how to best protect yourself. So no matter if you're looking at, you know, what level of the capital structure, bank debt, bonds, equity, trade claims, et cetera, you're always looking at the whole picture rather than sometimes if you're just an equity analyst, you can uh, sort of um, be picking up nickels on a railroad track or something that, where you don't know where the, the risk is. Are you using Audible yet? If not, you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash nobs. Try a book like Amaze Every Customer Every Time, 52 Tools for Delivering the Most Amazing Customer Service on the Planet by a past No BS Marketing guest, Shep Hyken. You can download it for free today. Go to audibletrial.com slash nobs for your free audiobook. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I mentioned about how you came out of Dickinson, had a, a idea of what your passion was, took a leap, took that first job where there was BS going on both ways. The bosses were really just seeing you as someone to wash the car, unload furniture, grab them coffee. And while it was a company that was good and these people were extremely talented, they weren't in the mentoring and coaching mindset. And so you then made the leap to go back to grad school. And, and we have a similar path. I had worked for three or four years and did a turnaround of a couple radio stations, which was an exhilarating, awesome first position because like you, it taught me so many different things about different types of companies. I then was recruited back to my college by the dean to work for the university and uh, have a grad assistantship. So I left a really good paying job to take a, about a 60% pay cut, but 
I think I had a similar experience as you. When I went back to grad school, it gave me what I would just call a global perspective. And I don't mean just internationally for companies, but global beyond what I had done at that first job. And it sounds like that's what grad school did for you. Even though you stayed with the same path, you learned more about other potential opportunities and you learned more about businesses that you could apply in the hedge fund business. Does that sound about right? That's exactly right. Then you make the the leap and get your job uh, with the large hedge fund. And um, you talked about how earlier you talked about how you became the senior investment person in about one and a half years. So talk about that. You come into the company out of grad school and you make a pretty quick, big impact pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know what it is about, um, about investing, it's, it's you do not have to be a rocket scientist at all. It's you just read. You just read their. It's all in the public domain. You read their public filings with the SEC. You read their K's, their Q's, any news that they're reporting. You look through their financials, and you just start to read it, and you just start to write things down. And for me, it was a puzzle. Every time I looked at a company, um, it's what are they doing? Do I, do they have a, a, a competitive advantage? Um, what are they doing? What do I think their prospects are? And, you know, how are their existing security valued versus what I perceive they can do? And just, you know, from just sitting down and reading all this stuff and writing stuff down, most of the time, nothing really clicks um, until the very end. So after you look at a company for, probably anywhere from five to 10 days, um, it would just click for me. And I, I just had a good idea. I mean, you're never, you're going to be wrong an awful lot in this business, but at least you get a sense of this. There's something here, you know, either from the buy side or the short side, or everything seems to be very fairly valued, or you're just not smart enough to know. And so, you know, it's important to be able to say, this is not my core competency. I don't quite understand this business. I'm going to avoid it. But when you find a spot that makes sense to you, it just, it just clicked. And you know, when I was there, really 07 through 09, was a, um, a lot, you know, right through the Great Recession here, there was a lot going on. And I just seemed to find my way toward a few um, trends that helped me make a lot of investment decisions within those trends. And, you know, one of them was I, I traveled down to Florida for a week to buy, and this was in, you know, probably March of 2008. I went to Florida to buy real estate at auction for the hedge fund. And we were just looking at, at um, you know, anything from from single family homes to multifamily residents to whole apartment buildings, everything. And I would go to these, I went to an auction every day, massive auction in a different city in the state of Florida. So I went to like seven of them in a row. And the auctioneer at the front of the room was, you know, bid, you know, he's going fast like auctioneers do. And he's, he's going to, you know, 500 going on and he's pointing to people in the audience saying that, you know, there's a bid here, but I didn't see any bids. You know, so I started to stand in the back of the room and looking and realize it was all gamesmanship. There were no bids that were making up this market. And I finally was able to buy a property that this is a free and clear auction. When you buy a property, you're supposed to get the property. And then I got a notice in the mail afterward from the bank that declined the purchase order. 
And I'm sitting there scratching my head thinking this can only be one thing. Um, these are the banks are not ready to, to impair their balance sheet. They do not want to sell one or a few properties here for a, a price materially below where they're carrying that asset because then they're going to have to mark down their whole balance sheets. So the theme that I developed from that is it's time to short regional banks that have a lot of, it's really time to dig into their balance sheet, see who has a lot of exposure to, um, you know, real estate in the highly overvalued um, regions of the country and, and probably develop a big short theme around that. And that became very fruitful. Um, that became probably 10% of our portfolio at Schultz. And, you know, I started to develop sort of multiple themes like that. And so I, I don't know. I think it's just I had a, sin, a sincere intellectual curiosity, and I liked the puzzle nature of looking at opportunities. Hear more of my interview with Ken Stott on part two 